This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is Tom Sisti. Tom serves as Executive Vice President and General Counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement. He also provides support to the Center for Procurement Advocacy as their counsel. Uh, Tom, good morning. Welcome to the show. Morning, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here. How are you today? Uh, I'm doing great. Um, Well, we have a lot of things to talk about today. Um, It's obviously a very challenging time, but in the in the procurement world is just a very fascinating time and all the different moving parts going on changing very very rapidly and I guess the first topic I'd like to you know get your thoughts on is um, section 889 and that's the provision from what last year's or two years ago with NDAA two years ago fiscal 19 uh, NDAA and that included prohibitions on the purchase of Huawei and other Chinese uh, telecommunications or technology companies' products by the federal government. Um, and I think that part has been implemented. And then there's a, a, a second part about contracting with companies who use those technologies. Tom, can you just walk through the basics of the law and where we are right now? Sure. Well, it was put in place to prevent uh, attacks uh, from foreign adversaries, notably China, that pose risks for both the government and industries. Um, there are really two sections to, or subsections to the uh, provision that are important. The first one, already implemented last August, it said the government can't buy or obtain products that use prohibited technology or services that use prohibited technology as a, as a substantial or essential component in a system. So that's when we went through that, the commentary on that rule that talked about people making representations and they were making representations down their supply chain that none of this technology was there. That in and of itself was problematic because the prime vendor was placed in a really a position where it had to trust that it was getting the the right information down the supply chain Uh, from its subcontractors at multiple tiers. The other issue is that uh, there's an ongoing responsibility to that provision. You have a very, very short 24-hour turnaround type of time frame. Once you identify the problem, uh, you identify problematic uh, technology in your system, you have to turn around, report it, and remediate it very, very quickly under that provision. Uh, When you're dealing with global technology companies, that can be a real challenge. The second part, subsection A1B, is what we're on the cusp of now. The rule for that should issue in August of this year. The government cannot enter, renew, or extend a contract with a company that uses prohibited technologies at all, all right, or uses a service that uses that technology. 
Yeah, and this is not limited to, to like performance of a government contract or delivery. That's right. This is like if you use it in your commercial operations, if you use it anywhere in the world. Banking, any, any field, any sector, no commercial technology, commercial acquisition exception. It applies to even technology used to develop software. The covered technology you're talking about is telecommunications equipment produced by Huawei, ZTE, or a subsidiary or affiliate. Some video surveillance and telecommunications equipment produced by Hytera, uh, Hangzhou, the identified, specifically identified firms in a statute or their subsidiaries or affiliates. And here's the, the sticky part. Uh, the statute also provides for the Secretary of Defense after consulting with DNI and with the FBI to add to this list. So it's kind of a moving target over the course of performance of a contract. So there's no micro-purchase exception or anything else. That's not intended to be a criticism. I'm just saying that's the reality. Over the course of the last year or so, I think there was the expectation, certainly from meetings with government officials, that this rule would issue in draft, provide for some give and take, some discussion on how that provision would be implemented, and then would arrive as a final rule. The concern now is because we are weeks away from the statutory deadline of August of this year, that this or a rule, an implemented rule, right? right? Right. It'll be an interim rule with a notice and comment period, which means uh, an immediate flash cut. Now, there are two ways to look at this. You could say, well, industry knew since the 19 NDAA was dropped that this was coming. What's your problem? Anyone in the government space knows that a lot of, you know, the devil is in the details, that you have to have access to the implementing reg to understand how to modify your supply chain, your production processes, uh, so as to comport with the law. So this, without this rule, I think it's going to be a real challenge. Now, some of the people on the Senate side have recently said, the rule needs to get out, you know, get this out and get the comments now so we can make this a workable rule. Because although there are some delay aspects to the law, they're not strong delay aspects. They're you know, a short period of time to accommodate having to... So, Tom, you're saying that there's folks who would like to see a delay, but you're not anticipating, like, a long delay and a delay to try to accommodate understanding of the rule and how to implement? Is that sort of I think where you're going is to the challenges with uh, the rule this time. I mean, the, as I said, there's the, we we're talking about an interim rule. That's part A. You, you have different perspectives in industry on what should be done. Some would, would like to amend this to mitigate as much as possible the impact on their global supply chain. Some would want to just get rid of it. I don't think that's uh, a rapidly shrinking minority of, of firms at this point because that's not going to happen. And then I, I, I can tell you on the CPA side, the members there are trying to get this to be a workable rule. Um, to try and bound it, if you will, based on the relationship to the fulfillment of a federal contract. So if you have dedicated supply chain to that coverage, if you have dual-use supply chain, you work out mitigation techniques to allow this to function. Because there's no bounding language in A1B, so it's just like open. It's anything that touches. And that's a very, very hard implementation. 
So I guess the question becomes, well, what's next? The pandemic, I think, has changed the environment significantly. Uh, people really are thinking about supply chain security writ large. We know that so what do you think is going to happen with the uh, Huawei rule? That's a good question. Alan Lord testified before the House about A1B and said it delayed. There are unintended consequences that people are starting to realize that that there's a level of disengagement that needs to take place, and it's you know it's it's got to be thought through a little bit. And she said that a delay might be appropriate. I didn't hear any objections during that testimony. I can tell you on the Senate side, there's probably not a, a lot of receptivity to that. Although there is a strong, strong feeling that OMB needs to get this rule out so that industry can comment on it and those comments can be assimilated in a meaningful way in the development of a final rule for the implementation of A1B. Right. So, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, though, though, I think the bottom line is fair listening to you is that this isn't going away. No. It's really just trying to level set and get more information to be able to address, um, you know, I guess how companies will be able to, you know, I guess adjust their operations to be able to comply with whatever we end up with in final rule. Is that fair? That's right. That's fair. Okay. So, and when we spent the entire segment on 889 and so, but when we come back, you alluded to other supply chain issues, you know, the impact of the pandemic, um, so we can talk about, you know, just at large where, you know, the NDA is going and then some specific pieces of legislation around uh, pharmaceutical active, active pharmaceutical ingredients that go to and where they're made and the supply chain risk associated with that. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Tom Sisti. He's the executive vice president, general counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement. And you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Tom Sisti. He's Executive Vice President, General Counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement. So, Tom, we beat Section 889 to death, I mean, you know, figuratively, um, in terms of walking through you know, what it was and the impact, but this is not an isolated thing in the information technology arena. We're seeing, you know, across the board, significant concern coming out of Congress with regard to the supply chain and in particular, you know, made in China um, and what does it mean for national security. And I think one of the areas that you've been looking at is, you know, the uh, pharmaceuticals. And in particular, there's a host of legislation, bills, potential bills that deal with active pharmaceutical ingredients, where they're manufactured, where, and as we know, you know, the vast majority of those in the market are currently manufactured in China. And that's the case for the entire world. But um, what are you seeing in that legislation? Well, you're right. I, I think, as I said before, even, you know, assessing the challenges with 889, the pandemic has opened the eyes of a lot of people as to the nature of the globalized supply chain for a lot of goods and services. And I think people were pretty much stunned to find that somewhere between 80 and 85% of the active pharmaceutical ingredients of drugs are being manufactured offshore, predominantly in China. I think people were stunned also to see that uh, critical items associated with medical services 
the masks, the swabs, the gowns, all of that, uh, again, manufactured in China. There are some members of Congress who have sort of been out there on the front line, really uh, almost prescient in the concern about this issue. Uh, I think the coalition had Congressman Garamandi uh, last week speak to the Medical Surgical Committee and discuss a bill that he launched before the pandemic, uh, along with Congressman Hartzler, the uh, Pharmaceutical Independence and Long-Term Readiness Reform Act, which lays out, H.R. 4710, which lays out requirements for the Defense Department to develop a strategy regarding the vulnerabilities to the medical supply chain, the drug components, where there are shortages, geopolitical issues associated uh, with the supply chain, the resilience of the supply chain, the manufacturing capacity in the U.S., and gaps in that manufacturing capacity, and the supply chain failure, recommendations to diversify the supply chain, for DOD and the VA, the requirement to buy American-made or FDA-approved raw materials for medicines. Where there are shortages, there is an exception to go to a trusted foreign supplier. This is uh, really, as I said, he was prescient in drafting this legislation. It is a comprehensive look at what's going on in the supply chain, and it's likely to move forward in some kind of context uh, that vision. Um, right. Is, is, is his legislation, is the companion in the Senate, is that Rubio's bill? Well, there is a companion-ish type of bill, uh, that be S 3538, the Strengthening America's Supply Chain and National Security um, Bill. That um, has, it, it's quite similar to it. Uh, but again, this kind of tees off of that. They, it calls for a classified report on the resilience of DOD supply chain, certain pharmaceutical coming from uh, countries like China and others uh, identified by DID, assessment whether the products, uh, active ingredient products, uh, can be brought from other sources, geopolitical risk again, risk to the U.S. generally, recommendations to ensure uh, that no pharmaceutical uh, is coming from a covered country by 2025, and you can guess the covered countries, China, act uh, assess the resiliency of manufacturing in the U.S., the supply chain single points of failure, again, recommendations for diversification. It pulls, this interestingly pulls pharmaceuticals from the substantial uh, manufacturing, okay. substantial transformation test under trade agreements where the API is a product, um, active pharmaceutical agreement is a product and it's wholly a product of another country. If it comes from another country. So what you're saying with that regard is that it, that's the idea to close a loophole with regard to quote, importing um, APIs from China manufacturing quote unquote them in the United States and then being eligible to be purchased by the federal government. It's to kind of close, I think, that loophole, is, as I understand it. Is that correct? Yes. And so, so you can see there's a theme, there's a theme uh, evolving here. And there are, frankly, I'm looking here to, there are three other bills, <laughs> believe it or not, uh, in, in this space. And it all... So that's about five or six, five or six different bills just focused on pharmaceuticals? Right. It's uh, S3343, Medical Supply Chain Security Act, 
There's S3537, protecting our pharmaceutical supply chain from China Act. Uh, that's Senator Cotton's bill. And then there's H.R. 5982, the Safe Medicine Act. That one requires um, a statement on labels if the product is manufactured to state that the product is manufactured um, in a lo location a contain that is responsible for contaminated products. All right. That one contains a finding of facts about the Chinese uh, production and uh, drug market, 80% of the API from China and India, uh, talking about uh, failures, um, contamination, um, counterfeits, all of this stuff on the Federal Health Protecting a Pharmaceutical Supply Chain Act. It has uh, the Federal Health uh, Program, HHS, VA, DA, other healthcare programs must be purchasing. By so, Tom, you, you know, I, I get you walk through all these different pieces of legislation. Is it fair to say that this is just the beginning? That there will, there are going to be, from a congressional perspective, there's something going to happen here with regard to APIs, whether it's initially reporting on where it's coming from to assess and then move forward in action. But this is the beginning of what's probably going to be, you know, a continued long-term look at that, the supply chain. Is that fair? Yes. I think if you look at some of the statements coming out of the administration from advisor Dr. Navarro, uh, we're starting with pharmaceuticals. And I think the whole supply chain is going to get a look to see what critical manufacturing needs to be domestic or at least in a friendly location uh, so that, we're not put in the position we were put in with the pandemic. It's interesting, though. There was a report recently on the status of Puerto Rico as a manufacturing location. Years ago, Puerto Rico received tax credits, or manufacturers there received tax credits to produce product in Puerto Rico. It was good for the country, good for the uh, territory. It was uh, good for the country, U.S., uh, writ large. It was good for the manufacturers. Those tax incentives went away, and I think as they went away, manufacturing went away. We had that discussion during our visit with um, the congressman, and he um, he said that it's certainly something that they are open to on Capitol Hill. It may be, it may provide a, a quick solution uh, to manufacturers in, in the U.S., but this is sort of a, I don't want to say canary in the coal mine, because it's, that implies something negative. But it's it's a it's a sign of things to come. I mean, at the end of the day, you can put restrictions on purchases, but the, the correspondingly, there's got. I mean, it seems to me you've also pro, got to provide infrastructure for companies to be able to address those restrictions, whether it's you know incentives to manufacture in this country or into Puerto Rico or wherever. I mean, I mean, there's two sides of this. I. I I would imagine, you know, from a congressional perspective. Is that what you're seeing? Yeah, I think uh, we're also seeing a willingness here to address the problem, um, an understanding of the problem and a willingness to confront it, which may not have been visible before. Right. Well, Tom, we're going to shift. Well, it's related, um, so I think it's a good segue for the next segment. We'll start talking e-commerce and their supply chain issues and market issues around, you know, the integrity of products there as well from the executive branch and, you know, and how that plays into GSA's implementation is going to be interesting to see. 
Um, and I'm Raj Walder. My guest today is Tom Sisti. He is the Executive Vice President, General Counsel of Coalition Government Procurement. You're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder, and my guest today is Tom Sisti. He's Executive Vice President, General Counsel for Coalition for Government Procurement. He also provides support um, to the Center for Procurement Advocacy. Um, and Tom, so we've talked a lot about supply chain in the first two segments, and you know we're at, I think, a point here where you're seeing across the board on the Hill Lots and lots of focus on the supply chain, and in particular China, and you know whether it's IT, pharmaceutical, PPE, you know, strategic minerals. Just across the board, a bunch. Of, there's concerns, and then at the same time, you know, coming out of Congress was the Section 846 with regard to e-commerce platforms, and you know that is GSA has been was charged with the authority of putting together, you know, that program. And, and currently GSA's, you know, they paused uh, during the initial beginnings of the COVID-19 pandemic, and now they've turned back to working on the solicitation and, and evaluating offers. But in the meantime, there's been a lot of like policy issues on that supply chain and integrity of markets that come out. Can you talk a little bit about those? Sure. Um, you know, we've gone through this uh, on a number of radio shows, so I don't want to replow the ground here. But since the beginning of the year, uh, we've had a, a couple of developments that I think are interesting in this space. First, in January, the president issued Executive Order 13904, uh, which was ensuring safe and lawful e-commerce for United States consumers, businesses, government supply chains, and intellectual property rights holders. And this... Um, executive order sought to address the integrity of the supply chain for the nation and for e-commerce by establishing a framework to combat trafficking in counterfeit products. Um, Just before that executive order was released, however, about a week before, Homeland Security issued a report to the president combating trafficking in counterfeit and pirated goods that report outlined the risks, the harms to consumers, to producers, to the economy at large by the prevalence of counterfeit products on e-commerce platforms. And it provided actions that the government needed to take, as well as e-commerce platforms needed to take to address these harms. So DHS recommended that the government uh, actively suspended to bar repeat offenders on these platforms act against non-compliant international posts uh, that are hosting these things, apply civil fines, penalties, injunctive actions to address counterfeits, analyze enforcement resources, create modernized e-commerce enforcement frameworks, and assess contributory trademark infringement liability for the platforms. It also articulated best practices for e-commerce platforms. And uh, those included a comprehensive term of service agreement, significantly enhanced vetting of the third parties by the platforms. The third party suppliers, right? Right. Third party sellers. Uh, Limitations on high risk products. So think like the products where you could have counterfeits, say IT, 
rapid notice takedown pr- procedures, enhanced discovery actions, requirements for foreign sellers, pre-sale identification of third parties, a clearly identifiable country of origin disclosure, and marketplace seller IDs. And so you can see from DHS's standpoint, it's a government and uh, platform uh, kind of joint effort of action. Now, when you look at Section 846 and the the marketplace solicitation that's come out, comprehensive terms of service agreements are not required. The solicitation doesn't provide for significantly enhanced vetting of third parties beyond certain limited cases such as Ability One or Section 889, as we discussed, or Kaspersky. Regarding high-risk products, you still have, there's no limitation really on those. There's limitation for specialty markets, but that's not the same thing. There's really not rapid notice and takedown procedures. With respect to regarding uh, clearly identifiable country of origin disclosures, government only requires them if they're available from the vendor and normally provided to buyers in alignment with the commercial practices. So Tom, you know, it seems what I guess maybe you can shed some, I don't know, but you have the executive order, you have the DHS report. And just prior to that, what you have GSA had had done was actually further relax the solicitation to essentially default to whatever the commercial practices were of the marketplace providers as setting the standard. At the same time, DHS is coming out with what it identifies as best practices, none of which are seem to be articulated in the solicitation. I think there's, first, I think we have to stop for a minute. I think you can call them the practices of the providers. To call them commercial practices, I think is a misnomer. And when you look at it in the context of overarching procurement law, I mean, we talked about commercial terms and conditions. We talk about them in the context of a robust market where there are many actors uh, providing uh, competitive activity that produces downward pressure on prices and incense uh, improvements in product and services. You are not dealing in a marketplace like that. I mean, how many active e-commerce platforms are there really around the world? you don't have necessarily the same anticipated commercial activity. So we should go, I'm not, I think there's a debate on whether we should call them commercial practices or provider practices. And well, I'm using the term because that's the term GSA defaults to, right? That's, you know, the ra- rationale. Yeah, but their rationale for defaulting to that is, oh, well, this is the commercial practice. Well, no, not really. Not well, in the context put, of overarching life. Yeah. Let me put you, what I think you're saying and, context, okay? Well, I think what you're saying is it's not a commercial practice if merely one or two companies do it a particular way necessarily, right? Is that what you're saying? Right. right. So um, I, I'm just trying to understand where you think this is headed. Do you anticipate, you know, some sort of modification to the solicitation in response to, you know, the DHS um, report and the executive order or you know, do you have the government going in opposite directions here and continue to do so? I, I, you know, it's, it's, it seems it doesn't make logical sense to me to continue down a path without at least acknowledging the DHS best practices for platforms and either explaining why you're not adopting them as 
I mean, it seems to me if the government's going into this business, this is a perfect place to set the standard for operations. I think we have not seen anything. One would think that if you're going to comply or align yourself with the DHS uh, best practices, you would do so in a public announcement because they are not really addressed in the solicitation. We haven't seen that. I think I personally am concerned that this thing is just moving forward. Uh, It's moving forward despite the fact that we have two studies that show hands down that GSA online schedules produce lower prices an overwhelming percent of the time um, on a product for product basis. Moving forward, despite the concerns raised about the use of data that derives from transactions across those platforms. I mean, we've seen news reports about investigations being started because there are reports that platform providers, notwithstanding explicit policies, uh, may be accessing um, that data for whatever purposes uh, commercially they want to. These are risk elements to the program that would have normally set set up a stop, you know, and check. So, Tom, I have one last question before we break for the segment, and that is I just – you know, I guess one of the, I mean, we've talked a lot in the first two segments about supply chain. And, you know, so one of the key features of the $6 billion program that GSA is setting up is that it uh, it, um, it does not apply the Trade Agreements Act. I mean, I think it's the first time in history that you've had a program of that dollar value anticipated or addressable market where, G, where an agency has consciously made a decision not to apply the Trade Agreements Act. Is, do you see that running into, you know, because under the Trade Agreements Act, you know, you're prohibited from buying products from non-designated countries and China is not party to that segment of the WTO GPA. Do you see GSA's, you know, approach here running into, you know, I guess concern from Congress or the Hill or others? in that regard? Because it seems, again, going in the opposite direction of the growing concerns around the supply chain. I think so. I think uh, this is almost like, is the sky blue type, <laughs> type of question. It clearly is in contrast to what exists out there. The question is, will, will we address it before a problem happens or after a problem happens, the way we address the medical supply chain? That remains to be seen. Right. Okay, so we'll take a break, Tom, and we'll come back. We'll talk a little bit about IT modernization, maybe a little bit about cloud and where that's going. My guest today is Tom Sisti. He's Executive Vice President, General Counsel at the Coalition for Government Procurement. I'm Raj Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder. My guest today is Tom Sisti. He's Executive Vice President, General Counsel of the Coalition for Government Procurement. He also provides support to the Center for Procurement Advocacy. Um, and Tom, I have one final question. We spent a lot of time there related topics, whether it's supply chain or e-commerce. You know, with this, um, what appears to be bipartisan concern with regard to the supply chain, I think amplified multiple fold by COVID-19 and, you know, in the you know, situation we find ourselves in from a supply chain perspective. 
we're having an election. Do you see any, you know, 180 degree change with regard to, um, you know, the direction of this policy or, or do you anticipate it remaining bipartisan? I don't see any change. I think there's, there are so few issues where there's a lack of contention on a partisan basis in Washington these days. One that has consistently been bipartisan is this issue of supply chain and at a larger level, the activities of China. Yeah. All right. Good. So, and now let's move on. I, I know we, we want to talk about IT modernization. Um, and I think part of that is also coming out of COVID-19 and the government's in particular operations, all the remote work that's being done, teleworking and infrastructure that's been set up, you know, that what agencies are utilizing and there's been talk around you know, continuing. So I guess some of the momentum that's been gained doing that and addressing challenges and that's been done in the context of IT modernization. Where are we on that? Well, so again, I want to make it sound like all roads lead to the pandemic, but as a result of the pandemic, I think uh, we saw brought to light some of the challenges with IT and the performance of IT in the delivery of some of the solutions uh, in response to the CARES Act, the uh, administration of certain programs. Uh, you had, if you think about it, the network very much strained, the national network. You had people running home teleworking across their networks. You had people um, really bas- basically resting in place, government resting in place and teleworking from there. Uh, their location. So a lot of activity and attempts to use the systems that exist in the face of that activity. And there were challenges. There were some uh, challenges in the face of uh, SBA delivering uh, certain activities. There, there have been uh, reports of a significant cyber risk associated uh, with hackers seeking to access, for instance, the research and other data associated with vaccine development. So all of this really does point to the need, not only at the federal, but state and local level, to assure that there's alignment of, uh, of IT performance and uh, the modernized equipment, software, and, and hardware necessary to, con- to conduct government business overall. I think uh, many in industry, some in government, feel that this is an opportune time to provide the resources for the government to come up to speed, again, federal, state, local governments to come up to speed so they can deliver these services in a robust way and in a secure way. So um, I know that over at the CPA and in other um, associations, there is a push to provide direct funding to agencies on the front lines of delivery of uh, COVID-19 Uh, responses to modernize their systems. There's talk about modernizing uh, and supplying money to the Technology Modernization Fund. Remember, uh, that was created about two years ago. The fund, there's an overarching fund for government and then an agency working capital funds so that they can improve and modernize their systems. And the idea would be to uh, provide money for um, quick modernization without the requirement to reimburse the fund to incent agencies to modernize their systems. There's support uh, for funding to improve the federal uh, risk authorization and management program, FedRAMP, for cloud technology security. 
uh, authorization so we can automate so, that. So, let me ask you a question. Where, where do you see FedRAMP going? Well, uh, you know, it's interesting. FedRAMP, you know, if you go back, uh, when FedRAMP was created back in, believe it or not, nine years ago in uh, 2011, um, the process was set up. It was set up to provide a, a baseline cloud uh, security ranking and authorization process. Um, but it has also been seen as an impediment because the authorization process is slow. It is costly for vendors. And at the, uh, you know, according to a June uh, 2019 study by the federal CIO, there you have lack of reciprocity across agencies when adopting authorizations. Um, you have agencies, some agencies utilizing their own processes on top of it. It makes it very hard to get the authorization needed. Why is this a problem? It's a problem because you want the government to have um, access to cloud technology. They think about it. A lot of this work, we're working in the cloud right now. I mean, we're, we're on a video chat, right? Everybody is in a cloud environment. So these services are needed. They're needed quickly. And we're going to be needed even more as we get into um, artificial intelligence and machine learning activities. So the way that given this limited environment and limited reuse, um, it, it really is uh, is a challenge to getting the authorizations needed to get cloud up online. Now there is a push, I think, a rational push to to automate the the process of authorization to work with utilizing common standards across the government to maximum maximum extent practical, and an effort to take a one and done approach, if you will this reciprocity. If I'm approved in agency X and I have the same requirements over in agency Y, I should get reciprocity and be approved there. That would speed up the process, reduce costs and give government access to more cloud solutions. Right. More competition. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then there may be special requirements depending on the level of sensitivity of what you're handling, obviously. Right. But But as common baseline, I think would be, a step in the right direction. Absolutely. Um, in that regard, um, you know, people focusing on that, I guess the last question I have for you uh, around this, uh, these topics is just, you know, part of the, I think one of the interesting issues is, is the government. And I know GSA has been working on, you know, a cloud policy and it deals a lot with the terms and conditions and pricing What's going on there. Well, I, I have to say, I, there were some associated problems with this. I think with cloud policy, uh, you really have to look at cloud pricing, too. I, I think the cloud, if you go back, we use, always used to talk about total cost of acquisition when evaluating um, a proposal. And we have to make sure, I think, in the award of cloud contracts that we allow on the back end transition, not only um, away from the existing cloud, but transition of new services in to the cloud, transition to a hybrid cloud environment. If you make on the back end, post award, the cost of bringing in new services and new providers in a multi-cloud environment, so prohibitive, then the government's going to be foreclosed from new solutions and going to really have 
a challenge. You lock into a and you lock in. Yeah. And so that's so one you- one issue. I think on a lot in a larger sense, and this is probably not cloud, but we, we might want to talk about it, is um, commercial contracting general uh, generally. I think is uh, is taking a weird twist. Uh, recently, heard stories of. Um, vendors uh, not having their commercial practices accepted in terms of price reasonableness um, in, in, in the contracting context. I mean, I think uh, it goes to the, a recent uh, coalition blog uh, dealing with the unpriced schedule and allowing vendors to put in their terms and conditions and really focusing where the rubber hits the road on uh, at the order level um, for pricing. Instead, you have these barriers set up where small, especially small businesses are challenged because they're going to have to you know, comply with this artificial upfront requirement that really isn't associated with a defined set of terms and conditions from an order standpoint, delivery terms, et cetera. Right. But yeah, there's more, I think there'll be, be interesting to see, you know, GSA's had the unpriced schedule authority now for It'd be going on two years here in August. So, and, you know, so we'll, we'll see, and, but no steps have been taken to actually implement. So the continuing question, I think a lot in industry have is when, you know, will GSA step up? So we'll be, we'll be monitoring that, you know, I would, and I want to close the show this week. Um, It's a sad week in the federal procurement community Um, and a a beloved um, person um, leader, uh, colleague, friend, was lost last week. Uh, Lenny Lowentritt, who's a deputy general counsel at GSA, been at GSA for 49 years. Um, he was my first supervisor when I came to central office at GSA. He was, but he was much more than a supervisor. He was a mentor, he was a colleague, um, and most importantly, he was a friend. And he was a friend to all. Um, he loved GSA. He loved being part of the procurement community. He loved being a public servant. Um, he's just a great person, and he's dearly missed and loved. And um, our thoughts and prayers go out to his family. Um, so, and with that, uh, I want to end the show. Tom, thank you so much. My guest today has been Tom Sisti. He's the Executive Vice President and General Counsel for the Coalition of Government Procurement. Um, And I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network.